0: The holy, valiant deeds of sacred fathers, based on the matchless church of Bangor. The noble deeds of abbots, their number, times, and names of never ending lustre. Here, brothers, great their deserts, whom the Lord has gathered to the mansions of his heavenly kingdom. Welcome to our Bangor Christian Heritage Trail. The area has been at the centre of Ireland's Christian heritage from the 5th century onwards, and the legacy of the holy men who studied and worshipped here has left an important and lasting legacy across Europe. According to legend, the unique spirituality of the area was first recognised by St Patrick. Legend tells the story of one night while Patrick and his companions were camping in the area, They beheld the valley filled with heavenly light and with a multitude of the host of heaven they heard as chanted forth from the voice of angels the psalmody of the celestial choir. It is to this tradition that Bangor is described as Valles Angelorum, the Valley of Angels. In the 6th century, Comgall came to establish his famous monastery here a foundation that would become the nursery of saints and missionaries, giving Bangor a lasting legacy of Christianity that spread far across the continent. We begin our tour in the North Down Museum. These handsome buildings were once the stables, haylofts, stores, and laundry of Bangor Castle, and they date back to 1852. The museum houses exhibitions that tell the story of Bangor and North Down, dating from its prehistoric past to the present. Inside, you will discover the wonderful Christian Heritage exhibition, with a number of artefacts and a fine model that shows how the abbey would have looked during its heyday in the 7th century. You can also see a full scale reconstruction of a monk's cell, surrounded by a herb garden that really evokes the living conditions of the early medieval monks who made Bangor their home. Perhaps the most significant item on display in the museum is the wonderful Bangor Bell. This is thought to date to sometime around 825 A.D. It stands approximately 35 centimetres tall and is made of cast bronze and decorated with an incised cross and intricate Celtic scroll work. It gives a really tangible glimpse into the skill and craftsmanship of the early Christian monks of Bangor. Inside the museum, if you look at the panels, you will see an image taken from the Bangor antiphonry. This is one of the earliest Irish texts, as it was originally compiled in the 7th century. After the devastating Viking raids in the early 9th century, the antiphonary was carried to Columbanus' famous foundation at Bobbio in northern Italy for safekeeping. The antiphonary is a book of praise and contains metrical hymns, anthems and canticles from the Bible and Lord's Prayer. Today the original is held in the Ambrosian Library in Milan. When you are ready to leave the museum to continue your journey through the centuries of Christian heritage at Bangor, make your way through the park to our next stop, the oldest standing remains of the Abbey Malachi's Wall. Malachi's Wall. Malachy was a key figure in the story of Bangor Abbey and is credited with the revival of the Abbey in the 12th century. Malachy was born in Armagh in 1094. His extensive experience from travelling across Europe inspired him to revitalise the flagging monasteries of Ireland as raids from Vikings and rival Irish kingdoms, along with corruption and neglect, had left many of the ancient monasteries, including Bangor, in a ruinous condition. Maliki was elected Abbot of Bangor in 1123 and a year later he was consecrated as Bishop of Connor. He set about replacing the dilapidated wooden structures of the monastery with stone buildings, following the fashion he had seen on his travels through Europe. His work once more established the importance and significance of the Abbey, which meant it was included in the Mappa Mundi, the famous medieval map of the world in Hereford Cathedral. Bangor is one of only four Irish towns depicted, along with Kildare, Armagh and Dublin. Malachy would go on to become the Archbishop of Armagh, the most powerful ecclesiastical figure in Ireland, where he continued to reform and renew the Irish Church and invited continental orders like the Augustinians to establish foundations in Ireland. He became a great friend of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, who would go on to author The Life of Malachy and later co-founded the powerful Cistercian Order. In 1148, while journeying to Rome, Malachy was taken ill and died in the arms of his friend Bernard. He was canonised as a saint by Pope Clement III in 1190. All that remains today from that period of the Abbey's history is this structure, known as Malachy's Wall, though it is likely to date to shortly after the time of Malachy himself. The wall is thought to be part of a 13th century building that was within the environs of the Augustinian Abbey. The remains of three medieval lancet windows can still be seen, providing clues to its age. Archaeological excavations in the vicinity of the wall revealed that the ground had been much disturbed by development through the ages. However, the discovery of human remains amid the disturbed soil suggests that burials were located beside the wall. Maliki's wall was recently stabilised as it was in danger of collapse. This work has helped to ensure the continuing survival of the oldest standing part of Bangor Abbey. When you are ready, continue your tour and enter the grounds of the abbey itself. Bangor Abbey the Abbey was originally founded by St. Comgall in 558 AD, and it has been an important place of Christian worship ever since. Comgall was born into a noble aristocratic family in around 516 AD, near present day Mahra Morn, on the northern shores of Belfast Loch, County Antrim. He studied under some of the most influential early Irish saints, including St. Saint Fintan of Clonina, Finian of Clonard. Movi Clarnach at Neven, and Ciaran of Clonmacnoise. He became great friends with Colum Kill, who went on to establish a number of famous monasteries, including that of Iona. In the initial stage of its foundation, the monastery of Bangor probably shared many of the typical features of early Irish monasteries in terms of construction. It would have been surrounded by one or more deep ditches with embankments which demarcated and separated the various zones of the monastery for different uses. The outer area was typically used for everyday practical and secular functions like metalworking, crafts, trade, markets whereas the inner enclosure was usually reserved for spiritual practice with religious buildings including the church and graveyard. Most of the buildings of Comgall's monastery would have been made of wood. In fact, the old Irish word for church, dar yach, derives from the old Irish for oak house. The buildings were likely to have been post and wattle structures, made from intricately woven hazel branches and upright wooden posts. It was not until the time of Malachy in the 12th century that the wooden buildings were replaced by stone. Comgol was known for his extremely harsh and austere way of life. Nourishment consisted only of bread, water and vegetables, with milk being allowed for the elderly and sick. Comgol is reputed to have served penance by reciting his prayers whilst immersing himself in the freezing waters of the small stream that ran alongside the abbey. The rule of Comgol, by which the lives of the monks were ordered, has unfortunately not survived. Though it is possible to get a glimpse of the harsh life through the rules laid down by Comgall's pupil, Columbanus, whose rule for the monks of his foundation at Luxeuil has survived. It reveals a harsh and severe life for the monks, with no concessions to body or soul. Let him come weary to his bed and sleep walking, and let him be forced to rise while his sleep is not yet finished. The key rules demanded obedience, poverty, silence, humility and chastity as well as having a shaved head known as a monastic tonsure. Despite the harsh discipline Bangor Abbey gained a reputation as one of the greatest monasteries of Europe and it attracted students from all over Ireland and Britain. One of the most notable was of course Columbanus. Other famous saints who studied under Comgall's rule at Bangor include Melruva, who founded numerous monasteries in Scotland, St Macuda, also known as St Carthage, who founded the monastery of Lismore in County Waterford, and St Malua, who founded monasteries in Monaghan and Leish. At its height, it is thought that over 3,000 monks lived in the monastery of Bangor. Monks and missionaries from Bangor established successful monasteries all over the continent, as well as Ireland, and we will continue this tale later on our tour. The monastery suffered in subsequent centuries. It was savagely plundered during Viking raids in 823 and 824. During these raids, the Vikings are said to have slaughtered 900 monks and destroyed the shrine of Comgall. The abbey was raided again in the middle of the 10th century and the abbot of Bangor was murdered. These attacks by the Vikings on Bangor Abbey and the collapse of the monastery's secular patrons, the E. Achach Arda, led to the ruin and eventual abandonment of the abbey until Malachy's renewal in the 12th century, when the abbey was rebuilt in stone. Initially, Malachy's plan to build a large stone church in the style of those he had seen on the continent was met with strong opposition by conservative locals. In his document, The Life of Malachi, St. Bernard of Clairvaux recounts the confrontation between Malachi and an objector. But that worthless fellow, presumptuous and arrogant as he was, not only wondered but was indignant, and he became a tale bearer among the peoples, now disparaging secretly, now speaking evil openly, drawing attention to Malachi's frivolity shuddering at the novelty, exaggerating the expense. Then, with many whom he was able to persuade, he went down to the place and, finding Malachi, accosted him. Good sir, why have you thought to introduce this novelty into our regions? We are Irish, not French. What is this frivolity? What need was there for a work so superfluous, so proud? Where will you, a poor and needy man, find the means to finish it? Cease! Cease! Desist from this madness. If not, we shall not permit it. We shall not tolerate it. To him Malachi spoke quite openly. Wretched man, the work which you see begun and on which you look so askance shall undoubtedly be finished. Many shall see it finished, but you, because you do not wish it, will not see it and that which you wish not shall be yours. To die, take heed that you do not die in your sins." And so it came to pass, the man died and did not live to look upon the finished works. Later, during the rule of the Anglo-Normans in the medieval period, the abbey fell under the auspices of the Augustinian order. Little remains of this phase, though the tall tower of the present Abbey Church dates back to the 14th century. If you look closely above the door and window, you can still see the medieval stone sculptures of human heads, possibly representing church figures or patrons. By the time of the reformation and dissolution of the monasteries under King Henry VIII, Bangor had fallen back into decline. It was surrendered for dissolution by the last abbot, William O'Dornan, in 1542, and the abbey, with all its vast lands, fell under the control of the crown. The ruined church was rebuilt as a parish church, as part of the vast redevelopment of Bangor under Sir James Hamilton in the early 17th century. The master mason responsible for the rebuild was William Steners, who had a great reputation for his work across Ireland. He constructed a plain, rectangular structure, without a chancel or transepts, and with two small windows at the eastern end. It was attached to the medieval tower, though it was without a staple at this time. Stenners died in 1626, and you can still see his tombstone near the vestry entrance of the church. Inside the church, you can discover a number of memorials and features that help to tell the story of Bangor and Northdown through the centuries, including the Rathgale Drum, that is a reminder of the troubled times during the 1798 rebellion. The drum bears the names of the battles of St. Field and Balnahinch, fought by the local yeoman infantry under James Dowsett Rose Cleland. He raised the militia, which was mainly composed of orange yeomanry of the district, at his own expense. By the 1870s it was clear that this small parish church was no longer big enough to cope with the growing population of Bangor and work began to construct St Congol's Church of Ireland which was finished by 1899. The church at Bangor Abbey was extensively restored in the 1960s. Of the original parish church only the walls, tower and spire remain. During the restoration great care was taken to harmonise the new with the old. A large mural, painted by Kenneth Webb, harks back to the original monastic foundation of the Abbey. It depicts Christ ascending into heaven with the famous Bangor saints Comgel, Columbanus and Gaul at his feet. If you have the time... We recommend exploring Bangor Abbey's Graveyard Trail to discover some of the fascinating historical graves and memorials that surround the Abbey. Among the gravestones, you can find that of Dr John Edward Simpson, the surgeon for second-class passengers on the ill-fated liner Titanic. Eyewitness accounts from survivors depict him as a noble hero who helped many passengers into lifeboats. Unfortunately, like so many others, he was lost when the Titanic sank, on the 15th of April, 1912. Other residents of the graveyard include Archibald Wilson, who, at the age of 26, was captured and hanged at Bangor Pier, along with two others, for insurgency during the 1798 Rebellion. And the grave of Sir John Newell Jordan, a native of Bangor who rose to become one of Britain's most eminent diplomats in the late 19th century serving with particular distinction in the Far East and China. When you are ready, continue your journey through Bangor's Christian history at St Comgall's Roman Catholic Church. St Comgall's Church During the Scottish colonisation of the early 1600s, only a small number of Catholics remained in the area, worshipping mainly in nearby Ards and Saintfield, with occasional summer services in Bangor in an empty house on Ballymagee Street, now known as High Street. However, as Bangor's population grew through the 19th century, it was decided that a chapel of ease was required to serve the expanding Catholic population. A new Catholic church was constructed on Brunswick Road in 1851 though the Catholic population quickly outgrew that small church. And this fine building was constructed here in 1889 and consecrated in 1891. In 1916, the Reverend Scully, a former chaplain of HMS Caroline, became the parish priest of St Comgall's, And it was at this time that many changes took place. Most of the fine decor you can still see today, including the stained glass windows, marble pulpit and the Stations of the Cross, were all added during the Reverend Scully's time. Education was a key factor in the history of St. Comgall's. The original church converted into a primary school in 1974, and another school, St. Malachy's, opened a couple of miles away in 1975. Today, the interior of the church is a serene and peaceful place to contemplate the story of its namesake, St. Comgall. Jonas, the biographer of Columbanus, said this of Comgall. Comgall was the outstanding father of the monks in Ireland and was known for his insistence on study and strict discipline. Though he was undoubtedly one of the most influential of the early church figures in Ireland, Only one portion of Comgall's writings has survived, passed on through the writings of his pupil, Columbanus. It gives a clear insight into the values that inspired him. If the cultivator of the land and husbandman, when preparing the soil to commit to it the seed, does not consider his work all done when he has broken up the earth with the strong share, and by the action of the plough has reduced the stubborn soil, but further endeavours to cleanse the ground of unfruitful weeds, to clear it of injurious rubbish, to pluck up by the roots the spreading shoots of thorns and brambles, fully persuaded that his land will never produce a good crop unless it be reclaimed from mischievous plants, applying to himself the words of the prophet, ''Break up anew your fallow ground and sow not upon thorns.'' How much more does it behove us, who believe the fruit of our hopes to be laid up, not on earth, but in heaven, to cleanse from vicious passions the field of our heart? And not suppose we have done enough when we subdue the ground of our bodies by the labour of fasting and watching, unless we primarily study to correct our vices and reform our morals. Comgall's legacy can be seen in how his approach to monasticism was adopted by his pupils, particularly Columbanus and Gaul, whose travels would spread Comgall's message and methods across the continent. Strickland's Glen. As you follow Brian's Burn, the burbling and sparkling stream that threads its way through Strickland's Glen, It is possible to imagine that this tranquil and enchanting wooded glade has changed little since the time of the ancient saints. Small brown and white birds, known as dippers, flit and splash in the shallow water as they hunt their prey. Others sing from the branches and the sounds of the sea softly sigh evocatively, just at the edge of hearing. Columbanus grew determined to carry out missionary work on the continent, to help spread the word of God to those regions that had entered a dark age in the centuries following the collapse of Rome. He sought permission to set off on his mission from Comgall, and he, along with his 12 companions, including Gaul, set off on their long journey, never to return to Ireland again. Follow the path through Strickland's Glen down towards the sea to our next stop, Smelt Mill Bay. Smelt Mill Bay. The name Smelt Mill Bay is an echo of Bangor's industrial past, from the old lead smelt mill that once operated here. It is conceivable that it was from this charming rocky bay that Columbanus and his companions set sail in around 589 or 591 AD. They would have travelled in a curragh, a traditional canoe shaped, round bottomed Irish vessel it is likely that they first voyaged to the western coast of Britain to resupply and refurbish the boat before setting off again for the coast of France. Though short by today's standards, in the 6th century it would have been an arduous and dangerous journey. The currach would have relied upon the strong monks to row when the wind failed to fill the sails. One of the most famous poems attributed to Columbanus is his boating song, he is said to have composed it for his monks as they rode up the Rhine towards Switzerland in 611. The sweeping rhythm of the poem creates a very effective picture. It begins...
1: sea cut in woods through flood of twin-horned Rhine Passes the keel and greased slips over sea Heave men and let resounding echo sound our heed The winds raise blasts, while rainstorms wreck their spite. But ready strength of men subdues it all. Heave, men, and let resounding echo sound our heave. Clouds melt away and the harsh tempest stills. Effort tames all great toil's conqueror. Heave, men, and let resounding echo sound our heave. Endure and keep yourselves for happy things. You suffered worse and these two God shall end. Heave, men. And let resounding echo sound our heave.
0: After crossing the channel, Columbanus and his monks arrived in Brittany, in France. At this time, France was divided into three kingdoms, Austrasia, Neustria and Burgundy. Although these kingdoms were nominally Christian by the end of the 6th century, they lacked the zeal for the faith that Columbanus was familiar with from his homeland. So Columbanus began his work with a strong sense of urgency. He established his first foundation at Anagre in the Vosges Mountains, on the border between Austrasia and Burgundy. Anagre was originally a Roman fort, and Columbanus and his monks set to work, adapting it into a monastery. The ruins of the old Roman Temple of Diana were converted into a chapel for his community. The fame of Columbanus and his monks quickly spread throughout the region and his following grew so large that he soon founded another monastery nearby, at Luxeu. This would become one of his most important foundations. By this stage, the fame of Columbanus and his followers was growing exponentially, and to cope with the fast-growing numbers, he founded a third monastery at Fontaine, just three miles north of Luxeu. By establishing three large monasteries, Columbanus was breaking local laws and customs. These laws stated that it was forbidden to set up a monastery without permission. Also, that an abbot was not permitted to have authority over more than one house. And finally, that an abbot should not rule in an independent fashion, as was the custom in Ireland, but that he should only have authority in conjunction with a bishop. Columbanus continued to ignore and flout these rules, and further gained the enmity of the French bishops by following the Irish paschal calendar that celebrated Easter at a different time to that of his host nations. Columbanus wrote to Pope Gregory, outlining his position and was duly placed under the protection of the abbot of Lerene. This did nothing to placate the French bishops who demanded his presence at a council in Chalons. However, Columbanus flatly refused to attend. His defiance earned him powerful enemies. Chief amongst them was the formidable Brunhilda of Austrasia, who was angered by Columbanus's high-handed rebuke of her grandson, King Theodoric II of Burgundy. She eventually worked to have Columbanus and his Irish followers expelled and sent back to Ireland. While Columbanus was awaiting his deportation back to Ireland, he wrote to his French monks who were being left behind at Luxeuil. I wanted to write you a tearful letter, but for the reason that I know your heart I have simply mentioned necessary duties, hard of themselves and difficult, and have used another style preferring to check than to encourage tears. So my speech has been outwardly made smooth and grief is shut up within. See the tears flow, but it is better to check the fountain for it is no part of a brave soldier to lament in battle. However, before the ship left the coast of France, a fierce storm drove the vessel back. The ship's captain grew convinced that it was his saintly passenger that caused the tempest and refused to transport him further. Rather than return to Ireland, Columbanus and his followers chose to stay and continue their missionary efforts. They travelled by boat down the Rhine to lands in the Northern Alps, where they continued to preach the Gospel. After trying and failing to establish more monastic communities around Lake Zurich, he continued to Bregenz on Lake Constance. Here, Columbanus and his followers discovered an oratory containing pagan idols. He had Gaul preach to the local inhabitants in their own language, and many were converted to Christianity. They established a small church in place of the pagan oratory, and founded a monastery called Merereau Abbey. Columbanus stayed at Bregenz for about one year, before an attack on his community resulted in the death of two of his monks. As a result, Columbanus resolved to travel once again, and crossed the Alps into northern Italy. However, his great friend and companion, Gaul, decided to remain at Lake Constance. Gaul's legacy is remembered in a Swiss canton and town that bears his name, St Gallen, and in the nearby Austrian town of Bregenz, On the old Belfast Road, just before Crawfordsburn, is a church that takes Gaul's name. It is worth a stop here to get your photo with the wooden sculpted bear that features in the legend of St Gaul and the bear. Columbanus and his remaining companions arrived in Milan in 612, where he was warmly greeted by the Lombardic King Agilulf and Queen Theodolinda. They granted Columbanus a tract of land near the Trebia River. Here he established what would become one of his most famous foundations, Bobbio. This was his final foundation, as he died here on the 23rd of November, 615 AD. However, he left behind an incredible legacy, as the disciples of Bobbio are accredited with founding over a hundred monasteries across Europe. The Coast Road. In the centuries that followed the time of the great saints, Bangor's fortunes ebbed and waned. The region, as we know it today, began to take shape under the auspices of Sir James Hamilton, who was responsible for rebuilding Bangor Abbey as a parish church in the 1630s. He was the son of a Scottish minister. He rose to prominence due to his role as a secret agent, serving the Scottish King James VI in the English court of Queen Elizabeth I. When the king succeeded Elizabeth to the English throne, he rewarded James Hamilton with a knighthood and all the lands of South Clandyboy, including Bangor. James was a resourceful and ambitious man. He made Bangor his family seat, building for himself a fair stone house on a site adjacent to the present Bangor Castle. He was soon joined by his five brothers and their families who he settled across the region. In 1610, he added the Dufferin territory to his possessions when he purchased it from the White family, greatly increasing his landholdings and revenues. In 1612, Bangor was awarded borough status by King James I, with the right to return two Members of Parliament. It was around this time that the iconic old custom house of Bangor was constructed. Under the Hamiltons, Bangor continued to develop, and a new trading port was established nearby, at Groomsport. Bangor became more industrialised in subsequent years and in the 1780s the cotton mills of Bangor were one of the main employers for the region and added prosperity for the growing town. The walls and turrets that you can see along this part of the coastal road are remnants of the Seacourt Estate, the former mansion of a Belfast industrialist. However, a century later the cotton industry declined and Bangor and its seafront began to change character again. The coming of the railway in 1865 meant that inexpensive travel from Belfast was possible and Bangor quickly became a popular and fashionable resort for holidaymakers from Belfast. Many of the elegant houses that overlook Bangor Bay that you see on this stretch of the trail date to this period. Our story continues at the next stop The First Presbyterian Church on Main Street. On the way along Queen's Parade and up Main Street, you pass three more churches, highlighting the importance and range of denominations of the church in local life. These include Queen's Parade Methodist Church, Trinity Presbyterian and St Comgall's Church of Ireland, which you heard about earlier. First Presbyterian Church The First Presbyterian Church of Bangor is a fine example of a traditional Presbyterian meeting house. Though the church was constructed in 1831, it is the fourth building to be occupied by the Presbyterian Congregation of Bangor. The first Presbyterian clergyman in Bangor was the Reverend Robert Blair, who gained a reputation as a fiery and reforming cleric. He travelled to Bangor from Scotland in 1623 to minister to the Scottish settlers who had arrived in Bangor and North Down in 1606 and quickly established themselves in the area. By the time of Reverend Blair's arrival, it is said that there were some 1,200 members of the Presbyterian faith in the region. For a time, the Reverend Blair preached in the Abbey. However, following a strong disagreement with the Bishop of Down and Connor, Blair was suspended from his ministry in 1634. In 1636, the Reverend Blair, along with 140 of his fellow Presbyterians from Bangor and North Down, attempted the perilous crossing of the Atlantic to America on board the ship, the Eagle Wing. However, battered by severe storms, the ship was forced to return. Though ultimately unsuccessful, the brave attempt is remembered at nearby Grimsport the Reverend Blair eventually returned to Scotland, where he became one of the leading figures of the Scottish Church. He was replaced as the parish minister of Bangor by Gilbert Ramsay, who continued to preach in the Abbey until 1661, when the Presbyterians were forced to leave the Abbey. Reverend Ramsay established a new meeting house at Fishers Hill, now called Victoria Road, in 1668. Though this new establishment was not to survive long, it was ordered to be pulled down in 1669 by Lady Alice Moore, daughter of the Earl of Drogheda. She had married Henry Hamilton, who was the third Viscount Plandiboy and second Earl of Clanbrassil. Though Alice was said to be very intelligent, witty, and handsome, she had a dark reputation. It is said that Alice persuaded her young husband Henry to make a will, leaving his entire estate to her he did not heed a prophetic warning by his mother. Son, expect that within three months after you perfect such deeds you must lodge with your grandfather and father in the tomb at Bangor. Unfortunately for Henry, his mother's warnings proved accurate and he died in mysterious circumstances in Dublin in 1675. Though Alice inherited, the Hamilton family strongly contested the will. Alice married Lord Barginy and relied upon him for financial aid to cover her vast legal costs. However, Barginy proved a dubious character himself and fleeced Alice of much of her money. Misfortune followed misfortune and a fire in her Dublin house left her near ruined. All her friends deserted her and she fell into a pitiful state. She succumbed to a fever in 1677, lamenting the sad state of her soul from all her misdeeds. According to accounts, she was buried in Bangor, with the least solemnity. Following the loss of the meeting house on Fishers Hill, for some years, the meetings of the Presbyterian Congregation were held on a green hill overlooking the sea. Reverend Ramsay died in 1670 and was buried in the Abbey graveyard. He was replaced as minister by another Scotsman, Archibald Hamilton. During his ministry, the church that was pulled down on Fishers Hill was rebuilt and the congregation in Bangor grew in number and influence, though the ministry suffered during the turbulent years of rebellion and war at the end of the 17th century. In 1741, the congregation moved to a new church that was established on the sea front at Quay Street, at the bottom of what is now known as High Street. This church proved to be a long-lasting home for the Presbyterian congregation and they worshipped here for the next 90 years. As the church flourished and prospered this new meeting house was constructed in Main Street in 1831 behind the graceful weeping ash tree. In 1877 a school for the poor was established by the congregation of First Bangor Presbyterian as the church grew in prominence in Bangor life. The church itself was refurbished and the tower with its iconic spire was added during the ministry of Alexander Patton in 1881. In 1894, a fine guild hall was added for the male and female schools. Inside the church, you can see the wooden pews of the congregation all focused around the pulpit, symbolising the Presbyterian belief that the church is the people gathered around the word of God. You can also discover a number of fine stained glass windows, including the memorial window that was created to commemorate the 300th anniversary of the First Bangor Presbyterian Church. As you leave the church, we are now heading back to the start of your journey along the Christian Heritage Trail. At this point, if you have the time, you can continue along the trail back through the park and to the lovely walled garden. This garden is a restoration of the original Victorian walled garden that was created here in the 1840s by the Ward family, who were the owners of Bangor Castle. At that time, the garden provided vegetables, fruit, herbs and flowers for the castle. After World War I, the Wards moved their focus from Bangor to their London properties and the garden fell into decline. However, in 1941, the garden, along with the parkland and castle, were acquired by Bangor Borough Council. The castle became the council's administrative base, and a large arboretum was laid out in the parkland as a public park. The walled garden served as a nursery for the arboretum, until it eventually became a storage facility for the council's maintenance division. In 2005, North Downborough Council revealed plans to restore the garden to its Victorian splendour and in consultation with a local garden historian, the work began in earnest. It was completed and opened to the public in 2009. Today, the garden occupies one and a half acres and is divided into quadrants. The flower garden, the herb and topiary garden, the kitchen garden and the damp garden. Each of the areas is separated by stately avenues of wildflower orchard and rose-covered arches. Each season brings a different character and charm to this lovely and tranquil oasis. In honour of the enduring legacy of Bangor's early saints soil from the garden has gone to the continental churches with links to Columbanus and Gaul. The land on which the garden stands belonged to Bangor Abbey part of a vast estate that stretched all the way to the Isle of Man. The garden is the perfect spot to sit and relax a while and to contemplate the lives of Bangor's ancient saints. Now we have reached the end of our Christian heritage trail around Bangor. However, the story of early Irish Christianity continues across the region with a number of other wonderful sites to explore. At Ballyhome... A five-minute drive or 30-minute walk from Bangor is St Columbanus's church. With the expanding population of Bangor in the 1930s, the church was needed to serve these new inhabitants and the foundation stone was laid in 1939. Inside the church, you can see beautiful stained glass windows that represent Irish saints, including Comgall, Columbanus, Gaul, Malachy and Patrick. If you wish to venture further afield, we highly recommend a visit to explore the splendid ruins of Grey Abbey, located less than a 30-minute drive from Bangor. This Cistercian Abbey was founded in 1193, and it was one of the first Gothic-style buildings constructed in Ireland. One of the features of the abbey is a carefully recreated herb garden that contains over 50 varieties of medicinal plants and herbs that would have been used by the monks who settled here. There is also a small interpretive centre on site, open seasonally. Approximately 30 minutes' drive to the south, you can find one of the best-preserved early Irish monasteries at Nendrum, in its scenic setting on the shores of Strangford Loch. Nendrum is thought to have been founded by St Mawcuy in the mid-5th century. The site reached its peak in around the 7th to 10th centuries and the remains of a church, round tower, stone houses, sundials, enclosures and tidal mills have been discovered. The site is one of the best to visit to get an understanding of how an early medieval monastery was laid out and it is an atmospheric and scenic place to while away an hour or two. There is also a small interpretive centre on site open seasonally. Just one mile east of Newtonards, you can discover one of Ulster's most important early monasteries, at Movilla Abbey. The site is thought to be broadly contemporary with Bangor Abbey, as it was also founded in the 6th century. It was associated with St Finian. Like Bangor, Mavilla was also catastrophically raided by the Vikings in the raids of 824 AD. But it was refounded and reconstructed by Augustinian monks in the 12th century. Most of the visible remains on the site today date to between the 13th and 15th centuries. The abbey contains a fine collection of Anglo Norman stone coffin lids and some fascinating ancient gravestones. If you are heading towards Belfast, it is well worth stopping at Hollywood Priory. This ancient Christian community was established by St Lazarin under the rule of St Comgall. Much of the visible remains date to the late 12th century, when the Anglo-Norman adventurer, John de Courcy, engaged Thomas White to build the priory for the Augustinian order. Its darkest period began on New Year's Day, 1541, when Henry VIII dissolved the monastery Eventually, leading to Brian O'Neill burning the roofs of the religious houses at Hollywood, Bangor, Movilla, and Grey Abbey in October 1572 to prevent occupation by government forces. Thank you for accompanying us on our journey through North Down's Christian heritage. This project was commissioned by Ards and North Down Borough Council and was part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We hope you enjoyed your tour through this wonderful area. We wish you well on your future travels.